0: In another attempt to talk to as many people as I can, I had a chance to sit down with Ian Thornley to talk about his career. So now, now there's, there's been one, two, three, four big rec- records over the last eight years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've all done you know quite well in the current music environment, mm-hmm. which is, again, different than what it used to be. Quite. Um, uh, you know, you, you get on the radio you get to tour? Mhm. Do you do yeah, you it st- seems
1: like I I've 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 sort of found a, a little a little path, you know, that I can I can make it work. I get to make the music that I want to make and that I think we want to make and 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 there's actually a there's an audience for it. There's a crowd for it. And we just sort of keep getting every tour gets a little bit, you know, the momentum grows a little bit. And the crowds get a little bit more I see a lot of the same faces, and I see a lot of new faces as well. You well, know? you see a couple of generations, right? Yeah, for sure. Not, I mean, it, you know, we, we, we have songs that have been on the radio since 97, and we have songs that have been on the radio since, you know, a couple of weeks ago. So it's, it's one of those... 97 is, is, as we sit here, 23 years ago. That's a long time. Yeah. To be... I, don't really, I don't really think about that, but, but every once in a while, when, when it's said like that, it's like goddamn God damn it, that is a long... That's a good run, and I, you know, I don't really think of it. I'm still like the best ones yet to come. Like well, that, I still that's... believe, like the, my my stairway is still right around the corner. That's the only way to. Do Brothers in it. Arms is coming next week. I'm going to. I'm telling you.
0: That's the only <laughs> way to do it because if you start relying on what you've done,
1: you're, oh, I, you're finished. I don't, all I hear when I hear anything that I've already done is I hear what it's lacking. You know. I always I still cringe at some of the lyrics on the first record and some of the vocal performances and I I still I still hear things being out of tune and things being out of time and and you know although I kind of like it sometimes I don't there's a lot more where that came from This is Ian Thornley in his
0: own words part 1
1: This is the ongoing history of New
0: Music podcast with Alan Cross Ian Thornley and Big Wreck from their 1997 album, In Loving Memory Of. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is another one of those special In Their Own Words programs. Whenever possible, I like to get as close as I can to an artist for information about their lives and career. The best case scenario is always an opportunity for a face-to-face sit-down so that we can get personal stories and personal histories right from the artist. And on this occasion, I have Ian Thornley, a guy who's knocked about the Canadian music business and, in fact, the global music scene for three decades now. He's also recognized as one of the greatest guitar talents this country has ever produced. So I thought it was time to get him into the studio to have a little chat. And we went deep. Very deep. We should really start at the very beginning. Because uh, there was precious little mentioned about you online, as a young man who mm. discovers the guitar. So let's go all the way back to the beginning. Tell me how you got started with this music obsession of yours.
1: Um, I've I've been obsessed with music from a very young age, from about four or five. Um, I started on piano. I just uh, there was a, fr- a friend of a friend of mine or a friend of the family had a piano. And, so did and, you just gravitate to it? Yeah, it just, it just seemed to make sense. Um, it like showed me a couple of things, and then it just came very quickly. And that it was, I it was over a weekend or something. There was some trip. I mean, I was very young, but I remember hearing things on the radio and then running over to the piano and then playing them. And they were like, "Whoa, there might be something here." Um, and then my mother had always wanted to. She's very musical, and she had always wanted to learn piano. Um, and she was a singer and she'd always wanted to learn piano. So she was like, well, we'll both take lessons together. And it was that kind of, that kind of thing. How old were you? About five. About five.
0: Yeah. So piano went on for how long?
1: Well, on and off for, up until I was about 14. Um, I was playing in bands around Toronto as like the synthesizer player. I was, uh... Really? You were a synth guy? Oh yeah. No, yeah. Big time. What did you have? Um, I had a Juno sixty or one hundred six or one of the one of the Junos. I had a Roland, um, and then I think there was a chord kicking around at one point. What were you playing? What kind of music? Um, it was it was uh, pop basically. I was in a band with Kurt Schefter. He was the he was the next young guy to me. I was thirteen. He was the next youngest guy. He was twenty one. <laughs> he was the guitar player that went on to play with Atlanta Miles, right? Right. And he was the guy who played like Black Velvet and all that stuff. It was Kurt. Um, but back then he was, he was the next youngest guy in the band that I could connect with. Um, I, I, was my sort of a, like a cousin twice removed or something was the singer, Chrissy. Um, and they, their keyboard player had, had uh, bailed on a gig at the Co- Copacabana and they needed someone. And she was like, well, my little cousin apparently is some sort of whiz and, and I was tall. So I sort of like, you know, they, they crimped my hair out and I looked apart. And I just sort of—it was, you know, it wasn't uh, giant steps. It was pretty straightforward music, and I, I just sort of, you know, I got it, and I filled in. I had a great time. I remember? used a, I used a, I used a, um, an ironing board as a, as a keyboard stand. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, and and that was the Copa Cabana. and then it was like we did the we did the, horseshoe and the bamboo and Elma combo. What was the name of the band? Do you remember? Tula. Oh, I remember. Yeah, it was. A, it was an eye-opening experience. Went up to phase one and recorded and did all my synths parts, and that was a big deal.
0: So there is teenage Ian Thornley out there somewhere playing keyboards.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, well, no. I've I've looked everywhere, and I have not been able to find any Tula anywhere. I even asked Ian to search for something around the house, and, and uh, he can't seem to find anything, so uh, moving on.
1: I remember the band Tula. Mm-hmm. That would have been me. I used to open up the like the. If it was, a, I would open up part of the set with like a Toccata and Fugue in D minor, like a Bach piece, and then and then we would roll into this sort of reggae vibe. And it was like, you know, I was a sort of a, the the whiz kid keyboard kid. St- I still, I My mom got sick, and I and I I don't know. I sort of associated the two together, maybe. But uh, you know, and then when she passed, I kind of. I've only realized that since that—that's really when I stopped playing keyboards and piano and, and all that. And you, um, that's when you picked up a guitar? Not really. Um, that's when I just—I just went straight athletics. I just started riding a lot and started playing basketball a lot. Um, and and my dad bought me a guitar, like an acoustic guitar, which I just put in a closet. Like I learned a couple chords and I was like, yeah, and I just put it in the closet and then. Uh, had to be for about a year and a half, two years, and then I befriended a guy. We used to work uh, during the summers. We'd get these summer jobs at a place, you know, Sounds Interchange. Remember that studio? Yeah, I think yeah, it's yeah. still there um, down in Adelaide. Yeah, right. We'd get summer jobs there as like this, basically a coffee boys. We'd work in the dub room where they'd do the sort of quarter inch uh, dubs of all the commercials, and then we'd send them out to different radio stations. And one of the other dub room kids was this guy, Dan, who was a guitar player, a really good one. And we became fast friends, and uh, he was like, oh, you got a guitar in my closet, and he pulled it out and started playing all these Zep riffs and all this this stuff that I was sort of listening to at the time and starting to get into. I was sort of digging through my parents' record collection, and he was like, yeah, and he he played like Stairway, and I was like, dude, it sounds just like it. And, And then once I figured out that correlation of how it it came pretty quickly, came pretty easily, but, but it was the, I think the real bug was being able to recreate things that I'd heard and things that I loved, you know, and, and be able to do it with some kind of
0: accuracy. When did you go electric?
1: Uh, as soon as I could get one, you know. Um, I was a big Bruce Coburn guy, and I was obsessed with... Uh, if, if a tree falls or, yeah, if a tree falls. Um, and that, that, he used the, the whammy bar and the delay pedal. So as soon as I could get an electric guitar and a delay pedal, and you know, and then I could do all the U2 stuff and I was off to the races. Were you playing in any other bands at this time with no, the guitar? No, 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 no. I, guitar, was I, was I was still a jock, you know, to the rest of the world. That was just something I did on my own and was obsessed with, you know, um, most of the time. I started to have knee problems because I'd gone from cycling to basketball, which apparently uses different muscle groups, and my knees were like, nope. Um, so, I mean, it wasn't because of that, but music had sort of, it had gotten back to me through the guitar um, in a very different way than it was with piano. So how
0: did you end up at the Berklee School of Music in Boston?
1: I just, there wasn't really much else that I was going to do that I was interested in, you know? Um, yeah, it's just always sort of been there. I didn't really have a choice. It wasn't one of those, I was like, this is what I'm going to do, and this is, I have no, there's nothing else i want to do. There's nothing else. Well, getting
0: into Berklee is not easy.
1: Well, I just, I had put together, you know, I, I had a little four-track thing and. Uh, had um, written a bunch of compositions and, and done all these parts, put them all together, and um, just sent those down. Uh, and then I had a had a call, and and because I had a I studied with uh, I'd studied piano at one point with Darwin Aiken, who didn't even teach kids back when I was really little. Who
0: was Darwin Aiken?
1: A heavy piano player back in the day, um, heavy jazz guy.
0: So you were quite accomplished as a keyboard player by the time oh, you yeah. picked up the guitar.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah no uh, yeah and that's probably why it came pretty easily just as far as a dexterity and um, stuff like that and my ear and and you know I've always had big ears but having a sort of a basic understanding of of harmony and theory um, nothing along the lines of a Darwin Aiken or any of the jazz guys it was it was it was really sort of mostly things that I deciphered on my own by ear and then being able to place names and, and numbers on them. It's like, oh, that's called a blah, blah, blah. Got it. You know, mm. It doesn't really uh, make you... It's not something you really understand how to speak until you... Right. It's like learning a language. How long were you at Berkeley? Three years. Did you graduate? No, not even close. <laughs> got, that not was kind of dismissive. Yeah, no, not even close. I I decided after... I think, after two years, I had decided like i I don't want to really I'm not here to graduate. I'm not here because the people that sort of had gone down that stream would end up being teachers. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. it's a noble it's a noble pursuit, but it's not for me. i can't i I can't get my head around it. even to this day, it's hard for me to explain things that I'm doing or that, you know. I just can't. It's hard for me to articulate music in that way that these people can. But it just seemed like the, the 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 people that would go that route would would end up either being teachers or you know getting gigs where they're reading charts and stuff like that. And that just wasn't my bag.
0: You wanted to be a performer.
1: I wasn't even sure about that. I just knew that that I, there was there was music that I wanted to do, and you know, autumn leaves wasn't it. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just not my bag. Uh, so I started. I think by the third, by my third year, I was I was taking courses based on uh, the teachers and then the the props who who I thought were people that I could pick their brains about certain things. You know? And is this where Big Wreck came together? Kinda. Yeah. I mean, Brian and I had met. In, this is Brian Doherty. Yeah, we had met first first year second semester because my first semester i was on the third floor of the dorms and then i got kicked off kicked out of that room and i was down in the first floor and right next to me next door was brian and, and dave henning and they were guys from from new york they they knew each other growing up so they they had room together and yeah we we became fast friends and and he turned me on to a whole bunch of music and i subsequently subsequently turned him on to a bunch of music um yeah, and then by by the end of second semester, going into the second year, um, we decided we're going to get an apartment together. And I think once we, we moved into the old Tremont Towers in Roxbury, which was uh, it was eye opening for a kid from Toronto. It was it was scary, is what it was. It was scary, like we were we were in a, in the hood essentially. And it's like you know Brian was from New York or whatever. He was fine. He was just like, okay, we just keep your head down and whatever. And I'm sort of like, wow, look at his, why does he have so much money in his hand and that kind of thing. You know, <laughs> not quite that naive, but that sort of That kid's gotta be 15. Look at how many hundreds he's holding. That kind of stuff. I'm like, oh, they, you know, um, it was just it was eye opening in that way. It just I learned very quickly just to shut up, keep my head down, and, and get where I was going, especially if if it was dark, you know. Um, but it was at that apartment where Brian and I lived, uh, where we kind of had we we sort of planted the seeds for what a band that we like we were into certain this and certain that. And it was like, well, what if we just sort of put it all in a pot and came up with something, right? Um, and we'll find a singer who sounds like this, and we'll we'll get this guy and we'll get that guy and. Um, I had already met Forrest when I was on the third floor and and Dave Henning was the obvious choice because he was, you know, grew up with Brian and and that was pretty much it.
0: Still more from the early days of Big Wreck coming up right after this. This is part one of an in their own words discussion with Ian Thornley of both Big Wreck and Thornley. And we're still talking about the early part of his career when Big Wreck first came together in Boston. Was Big rock formed in Boston, or was it formed here? Boston. It was formed in yeah. Boston. I remember uh, when the first album came out, and we were unsure at the radio station whether this was a Canadian mm-hmm. band or a band from the U.S. Now, it could have been Canadian because we heard about you mm-hmm. and having been spent time in, in Boston, but we understood that the rest of the band was American. Yeah, And frankly,
1: you didn't sound very Canadian. Yeah, i i don't know what that would mean but no but i, I we, don't even we, no i don't even think we had a we just sort of went for i mean we borrow i still do that i still wear my influences on my sleeve i don't really i'm not trying to hide anything if somebody says that sounds like zepp I'm like right yeah. you know i i we were trying to go on, we were going for a particular thing, and I still am, I'm I'm still trying to find, like, and I think that first record was a result of, you know, searching for a particular... Well, what was interesting about that first record
0: was that it, you guys seemed to emerge fully formed. Hmm. It didn't sound like a debut record. It sounded like something really, really
1: polished, Uh, really together. Well, it doesn't to me now. I just, I hear a bunch of kids dicking around. (laughs) Um, It was our first, like, a lot of that record is demos. That Atlantic essentially bought, but and that was my first time is really hearing my voice come through speakers. I had never. We were still like not that much, not that not that far before then. We were still looking for a singer. How did you uh, end up singing? Because we couldn't find one. We had one guy. We spent a, we spent a very fruitful summer in Portland, Maine and I met a great bunch of people and just sort of got into a scene there over the course of a summer. Um and this is after we had um had management. And during that summer it was we were a three piece. Brian had said I'm I'm out. I can't do this anymore. I'm going back to New York. So Brian had bailed and we were a, we were a three piece. Um and and I'd written like that's when I I'd, I'd written blown and and that song and stuff like that. They just sort of popped out in uh in Portland. And we were still looking for a singer, and we got this one guy. And I was like, I, I, because he was in another band that we'd seen play around, and I was like, I, I dug his vibe, and you know, it was like hey, he's got a good voice, and but there, you know, there's something a little shady about him. <laughs> it was a little <laughs> shady, but you know, I'm like, whatever. We're all shady. We're all just grubby musicians wearing the same clothes we've been wearing for two weeks. You know, that kind of thing, and sleeping on floors, and that that sort of vibe. And I was like, but there's something, you know, and and Forrest Van, somebody had broken into the van and, and boosted, you know, a bunch of stuff and taken the stereo, um, and then w- sort of word got out that it was this guy.
0: Wait, your prospective
1: singer? Yeah. Broke it into would, your van and stole would, your stuff. Well, it was him, and, and and he had either it was either him or him and his boys, um, or his boys. Like like he was he was sort of affiliated with this. Um, I don't want to say gang, but essentially a gang that that had gone that that ran up and down the eastern seaboard of the U.S. Like big, you know, a big connected thing, and he was sort of on the, on the fringe of of that. And I don't really know too much about it, but I was just like, "Oh, what are we gonna do here? What are we gonna do?" And it was just like, "Okay, well, let's turf them." And so we we turfed them. I, I think we did we did a show or two maybe with them. Like we had come up here for a summer, and that's you know we were we, that's when we toured with um, toured with we opened a few shows for the Headstones and a few shows for the Watchmen, and then went back down to to Boston. So let's talk about you getting signed. So you say that the
0: Unloving Remembering of album is, is mostly demos? Yeah. So how did you attract the attention of Atlantic Records?
1: We had, uh, we had management. We had the management trust. Um, oh,
0: the Tragically Hips management.
1: Yeah, and, and, and the Watchmen at that time. Uh, and I think Andrew Cash was also. But again, this is going back. But yeah, we, I had sent up some demos and stuff. I, and and you know some of it caught caught Derrier and they're like, "Well, let's see what you know." And I think that's sort of how the whole thing started. Was was because the management was up here, and we were down there. And then and then I had gotten my student visa had run out, so I was denied entry into the U.S. And that was a whole thing. So I got a gig as a country guitar player for a few months. Which was weird. There's I video. Can't, there's video out there somewhere. I can't imagine brutal. But actually, great. You know, it was a. You know, it was also. It's also. It's all music and notes. And it's like it became very apparent that it's like while I might be an accomplished guitarist, I am not a country guitarist. It, like that's a different. That's a whole different thing. So, the guys be, who can really do it are just amazing. It's a different language to me. It's beautiful.
0: So, uh, because you can't get into America.
1: Yeah, uh, I was stuck up here, and, that, and that's actually when when everything kind of started, and it was like, well, can you get me back down there to, you know, we're getting the boys back together. It was a few months, and it was Alan Gregg, and, and Alan was like, well, yeah, you know, he knows people. So he called people, got me back down there, and we put the band um, through the ringer, and played a few shows, and... I think came up here, and that's when we did the the headstones and 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 Watchman stuff. And then you know it got. I mean, we were literally. I had gone. I would go two or three days without eating and stuff like that. And it was like things were really, really, um, you know, the skinny days. So I, I and Brian was like, I'm not doing this because I don't have to. So he went back to New York, and he he would get a pretty good gig, working construction, doing carpentry stuff like that. So he did that, and then Brian and and, sorry, and then Dave and Forrest were like, okay, well, we're going back too. Um, And then I, we all moved down, and it was it's a long, long thing. But essentially, I think the management trust had put up money for us to go in the studio with Chris Wardman, Um, and we went into Presence, great sounding room, and and we were all dazzled. Um, Loved. Particularly the engineer, who was Matt Di Matteo, and really got on with him. So we did maybe nine or ten songs there, um, and then and then came back as a three-piece and did another bunch of songs just with Matt Di and that's where the oaf and that song and and you know, I think the the bulk of of the record came from that second demo session at present. <laughs>
0: So, the first Big Wreck album comes out at a great time for Canadian music, because all through the 90s, we seem to have developed a nationalism for domestic music. We had the Tragically Hip, we had Mm. the Watchmen, we had the Headstones, we had the Tea Party, we had uh, Moist, we had Our Lady Peace, we had I, Mother Earth. And in this mix is Big Wreck. And once people heard what you were doing, you were sort of lumped in And I don't mean that in a bad way,
1: with this huge tsunami of popular, powerful Canadian music. Of course, being in Boston and then coming up occasionally to play shows or whatever, um, through the sort of 95 and 96, into where the record had finally come out in 97, um, we were keeping tabs on on the bands that were happening up here and, and what was going on. I mean, not too closely but of course you'd be driving around and, and you'd have the radio stations on and I knew there was I knew the two stations in Toronto that you could listen to um whenever we'd get here so uh yeah it was uh you know it was interesting everybody seemed to have back then it was pretty obvious who was doing what and everybody seemed to have a thing and that um, first
0: album sells a quarter million copies in Canada
1: yeah we you must have been surprised by that
0: yeah, I mean, when you hit it out of the park with the first try.
1: Yeah, I, I you know, I still, I, I'm never, I'm never really sort of, I, I would never be satisfied with any sort of number. I'm not satisfied with the record. I'm not satisfied with the, you know, that's always, I've always looked at that stuff that way. Oh.
0: Back with more with Ian Thornley, telling his story in his own words, in just a second. Welcome back. This is part one of an in-their-own-words sit-down with Ian Thornley of Big Wreck. We're now past the first album. Time to move on. The second Big Wreck album was called The Pleasure and the Greed, and was released in June 2001. This was the first single. It's called Inhale. Uh, the second album, the the difficult second record, comes oh. out. Uh, the pleasure of the greed in in 2001. So you had four years of really yeah, it was
1: a long time.
0: That would be a long time to be on the road with one record.
1: The one stretch we had done uh, we had done 18 months basically straight on the road. That's too long. I'm at the point now where I'm like three months. I, I cap it like no way. Um, cap it at two, and then because you start going batty, you know. When you're 20, whatever I was, two, twenty-three. back then, it was, you know, that's fine. Because I was sort of like living in hotels when I wasn't. I'll stay in a hotel for a couple of weeks and then meet up and start somewhere else. And that was a long time. And then I do remember having a little studio sort of writing room thing uh, in town, with Colin Cripps and Mark who he was the the front of house mixer for the hip, and Colin Cripps, of course, a great guitar player. And we had this room, and uh, there was a bunch of great gear in it. None of which was mine, really. And you know, I'd go in there and just sort of write and hash out tunes. And I had I don't know how many tunes I had demoed, um, and I just remember that none of them were ever. Sending them down to Atlantic, and it was like, oh, this is what they mean, because of course the first record they they bought demos that were already done. And, yeah, they, and we're they just doing they knew what, what they were we getting do. into. We're just doing what we do, and I was I continued to just do what we do, and they're like, no, 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 you need to do this, and I'm like, I'm not doing that. That's terrible. Ew. What did they want you to do? Creed, Nickelback. They wanted that. That's totally what they wanted.
0: Because they wanted something that would sell.
1: Yeah, they want, you know, a sort of a really sort of uh, packaged kind of thing. And we actually wanted to go further in the other direction, you know. What, especially after seeing so much of that on the road and all these festivals and all these bands that we played with, the more of those kind of bands that we saw, the further we wanted to get away from it. Um, and that, of course, is not the way the big business is is gonna. They're not gonna.
0: So not down with that. Big Rec version one point lasts exactly two albums. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna guess that a lot of that has to do with the interference that you were getting from the record label.
1: Oh yeah, no, what they wanted I think you to that, do. Yeah, I think that uh, that would definitely, you know. That'll get at you in different ways, but when you've been out for long, long periods of time and other things had started to grow and rot at the same time uh, within the camp. So it was uh, all those things kind of made it a pretty toxic environment. I, I had to get out.
0: Okay, before things break up, let's get one more song in here from the second album. This is a single entitled Knee Deep. We're already an hour into Ian Thornley's story and we've only just managed to cover the first two Big Wreck albums. There is so much more. There's Ian's studio work, his solo material, the reformation of Big Wreck. And there was a time, two times actually, that he was offered the opportunity to become the lead singer and Frontman for Velvet Revolver. This is fascinating stuff. So I hope you can join me next time for part two of Ian Thornley in his own words with the ongoing history of new music. Meanwhile, there are hundreds of podcasts you can listen to. They make for great binging. Just go to Spotify, Apple Music, Stitcher, or any of the other podcast providers that you can name. Just download and go. They're all free. And please rate and recommend if you get a chance. I have a website that's updated daily with all sorts of music news, information, and recommendations. It's a JournalOfMusicalThings.com. Please subscribe to the newsletter so you don't miss anything. That's free, too. And we can connect through Facebook, Twitter. I do have a blue checkmark and also Instagram. All email can go to alan at alancross.ca and I will get right back to you. Tactical Productions by Rob Johnston. Talk soon. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.